start this one by just kicking it over to you Keelan tell me what you got on cheese uh today I'm gonna start with a little uh protein heavy cheese Ooh, I like protein ah well many many people do so in order to make this cheese you take a nice sheep's milk and uh make a pecorino which is like a semi hard cheese it's in the softer side of hard cheeses um, and then you take that nice, beautiful cheese that you set out and cultured, and you stick it in a dark room with a bunch of flies. Wait, so I stick my pecorino in something in a yeah. dark room? <laughs> Jam that pecorino in a dark room. Okay, got and, it. And uh, let flies fill it with maggots. So standard Friday night. Yes, correct. Yes. <laughs> um, so take cheese, let flies legs in it, then you let it sit in another dark room for two to three months until all of the maggots have matured and processed all of the cheese through their guts, leaving a nice, creamy, flavored, maggot-filled cheese. Sounds delicious. Yeah, so, and because it is deemed unsafe to eat this cheese with the maggots dead in it before you get to them, mostly it is eaten with live, roving maggots and if you make any open face sandwiches or anything with it, you kind of have to cover it because their larva can jump six inches. <laughs> Hold up. Are people making open face sandwiches with this? Uh, so the traditional way to eat it's on a piece of like flatbread. So it's just on top of something. But lots of people make sandwiches with it for the purpose of making sure that the larvae stay where they are. So that's like a downside. It's not like. Hey, put it on top of the bread so I can see that shit hop a little. Well, apparently they don't <laughs> mind it. It is completely illegal in the place that it's produced. Okay. Uh, so you can't, where? you can't just go and buy it somewhere in Italy. I actually cannot remember where that was. Italy, got um, it. But, yeah, so it's described as a soft, rich, spicy cheese, more like gorgonzola on crack. The reason why it's illegal is because there is a chance... That when you consume live maggots, they will survive and uh, get all the way into your tract and eat holes in your gut. Ooh, that's not good. I, at first, I just thought, hey, that's more cheese. Yeah, but... it's not, <laughs> apparently. But have no fear. There's a safe way to eat it. If you okay. put it in a paper bag and close the top real tight and wait until you stop hearing this pitter-patter, which is the uh, larva jumping off once that stops you then know that the maggots have suffocated to death like some kind of gruesome reverse popcorn and uh (laughs) you can eat them dead and it lowers the chance of you getting ill from it oh okay yeah i mean i yeah i guess most people prefer their maggots dead but it's nice to have the option I just was, I haven't gone and looked at how paleo this is, but this seems like one of the most paleo things. I don't remember yeah. if cheese is in paleo. I mean, high in protein, right? That's that's it right there. Yeah, it's just racks on racks. Protein yeah. on protein. Not a lot of carbs in a maggot. <laughs> or at least I think. I don't, I don't know. We're, we're not a medical podcast, so. I think that's roughly all I've got for that little disgusting piece of cheese. Uh, what would you would would you try this? I don't uh, know if you like gorgonzola, but that's what it's been closely related to. I'm not sure that I've even had gorgonzola. Gorgonzola is, that... is blue cheese. Okay, well then I do like gorgonzola. Yeah. I love blue cheese. Um, so I think I'd try it. I yeah, I like trying weird shit. Um, I had like fried scorpions in Thailand once. I've had snake. I guess nothing like super insane, but fried scorpions I would consider on the edge. Snake is something that like we're both in Arizona. Yeah, that's true. Maybe most people would find that weird though, but we are desert rats. Well, so when did this cheese come around? You're saying it's in Italy. Oh, this has been. Uh, Some this old is cheese. one of those cheeses <laughs> that I can only imagine they had to eat. 
because like so the origins of it are real shady other than it comes from small villages in i keep wanting to say corsica but i'm pretty sure that's not fucking even anywhere that's near a pokemon there. uh possibly <laughs> but, that's uh, actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's just been like this family like i believe northern italy small village thing forever 2002 is when it the EU finally made it completely illegal. Um, I couldn't actually find any cases of people dying from it. So I don't know if that's... I personally believe that even if you're in a situation where the people who make it are kind of like, it's risky, then maybe some people did die. Yeah. So I know some countries have like uh, almost like licensed cheese or like official cheeses. Well, that is how... So that is one of those things where those cheeses were the only cheeses that those people had. So that was cheese to them. It's the only cheese we had. Well, so (laughs) if you only make like a pecorone or whatever, or you only make a Parmesan, at the very beginning of all that, that was the only cheese that you made. Right. So when we started all coming together, Uh, everybody just started. Cheese cultures. Yeah. Like literal cultures. And everybody. (laughs) So it became like this weird thing where basically to uh, protect the market of your cheese you would basically get it registered but that's like the same rules of champagne like yeah. it's not this thing unless it's made in this place even if it meets right. all the criteria to be the thing and that's more to protect markets i feel like cheese was almost like the way we treat weed now like back in the day because it was like yeah. a, a little bit magical a little bit like a drug like through <laughs> uh through looking at a couple of different people on this cheese thing i did find um all hobbyist cheesemakers kind of are like when you were in high school and you went to your friend who wasn't a drug dealer, but parents didn't care that he grew pot in the backyard. And you'd get to see like his weird little science experiments and stuff where you're like, oh, this is a purple Kush Jindica that I got off the guy from down the street. Yeah. I'm making a hybrid with the oak tree that's over in the other corner. <laughs> yeah, just, I actually watched somebody, I, I think it was a British guy, make American cheese. And uh, that was very, very interesting just watching because he was making it because somebody had asked him to and he did not want to. And just watching the guy who asked him to be really, really happy about it was a lot like the satisfaction you'd get if you found out you're a drug dealer. Man, this thing's got a 25 gigahertz band and a hyper accelerated multi-channel core. And you already hit record? How do you know that? You see this blinking light on the backside? That's labeled transmitter? Well, you've been blasting your lover's quarrel the whole time, and because I can see some greasy fat fingerprints all over it. <laughs> but wasn't that exactly what you were looking for? Man, you think I'm looking for some junky ass pre locked paper tech? With a fully directional monitor, an ergonomic keyboard, and blue light filtered screen? Man, that's exactly what I'm looking for! Evidence dating back to like 8000 BC. The first evidence, it, it's just kind of almost like fossilized cheese or like remnants of cheese that they've found in different places. So, like the one that's 8000 years old or 8000 BC was found in clay pots. Um, the first written evidence of cheese was like 300 to 200 BC. So, I mean, people are just freeballing with cheese before that you know they weren't taking the time to document it but well i mean when when was the paper invented (laughs) that's a good question i mean it's gotta be i I don't know way before they were writing about cheese on paper how often do you (laughs) think pictographs are actually about cheese and we just have never (laughs) put that together like we're like it looks like a square so we assume it's gold yeah. But realistically, like, that entire culture's trade was on bricks of cheese. For real, yeah. Or, like, if you see, like, a circle that's like, oh, they're worshipping the sun or something. Oh, it's man, like, no, that guy worship- just brought cheese. <laughs> <laughs> the men from the north brought all of the cheese. Cheese also... Well, I mean, let's. you talked about a little bit about how to make cheese, but likely the first cheese actually came from storing milk and containers that were made of the stomachs of what are called ruminant animals. They're called ruminant animals specifically because they have a thing called rennet, 
in the in the lining of their intestines. Yeah, that's the difference between uh, sour cream and creme fraiche. Okay, yeah, but this stuff is rennet. It's like a basically just an enzyme that causes the milk to curdle, and then you know the rest of the cheese process. I bring that up because it's interesting, although like you know this whole thing with the stomach lining of animals and whatever. Cheese is pretty much a European thing uh, until it's spread. You know, it's like cheese then spread all over the world. <laughs> cheese spread. <laughs> but it's like a European thing, but it's also, I found some kind of weird evidence of them like almost pushing it on other cultures. Like just saying like, no, they already had cheese. <laughs> like uh, the Incans in particular. So there, there's all these European reports of Incans eating llama cheese but there's, like, no evidence that Incans ever milked llamas in the first place. What? How is that? <laughs> That's a very weird narrative to push, but I, to some degree, can see that happening. If they're like, nah, man, we didn't ruin this culture at all and completely take over everything that we're doing and replace it with our own personal markets. Yeah, I think maybe another potential explanation of that, and I hope this is the one, is that they were, like, Feeding Europeans some nasty shit from a llama. Oh my god! And they were like, "Yes, uh, here it is." And the Europeans were like, "Oh yes, it's cheese. I love cheese." <laughs> I mean, I can say because that's cheese in general is one of those things that yeah. I think they ended well, up eating the because they were starving. Right. And it's like, cool. We have this. We stored it. It then turned into something else. We ate it. Didn't die. And I can see you showing up somewhere else and them thinking they were feeding you something poisonous. And (laughs) you just being like, nah, we eat this shit all the time, man. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much Europeans. um, Let's see. Actually, the first cheese factory uh, was in 1815 in Switzerland. It's kind of... I, I tried to figure out some stuff about this but everything i read was like it's not really the way you'd imagine a factory today it's just kind of a small scale production but it was the first time anyone really tried to like put a process to it yeah because that's all a factory is initially (laughs) an actual assembly (laughs) line ish thing where a processed well so this one was an assembly line though because in 1851 in america a guy in new york made the first assembly style cheese production factory uh and he's the guy that really kicked off like i guess cheese as we know it today so that's he's i get into that a little bit okay yeah so not the guy who opened the factory but one of his partners yeah um but basically that kicked off like other people kind of looking at his model and being like oh we should do that too and within a couple of decades, there were like hundreds of dairy associations across America already. So they just kind of picked up that model and just built it out. Yeah. If you want to continue with a little bit of cheese history, which brings us pretty much to the modern day of cheese, uh, start with a story of a young Canadian born in Ontario until the age of 28, where he moved to Buffalo, New York for seemingly absolutely no fucking reason. Um, just ran over the waterfall? Well, so it was... Is that where Niagara is? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure because I don't pay attention to any of that. I think part of it, like, one side's Buffalo, one side's Canada. Yeah, but so he ended up going... uh, The only reason why it was brought up is it was a hundred miles past where he could have lived if he just wanted to immigrate to America. So he ended (laughs) up going, like, a lot farther in, and apparently that was somewhat of a big deal, but no one could tell why he did it at all. Like, look um, at this brave Canadian man. Yeah, right. Going a hundred exactly. miles in. <laughs> so he ended up uh, in Buffalo, New York. The first thing he did was invest in a small cheese company, which uh, then let him work his way up through the ranks. Which I don't entirely understand. I think he basically paid them for a job. Um, He's but, like a cheese apprentice. Yeah, I'm cheese not, intern. I'm not <laughs> sure, but eventually he was doing well enough that they asked him to move to Chicago. And run their Chicago cheese factory. Okay. Or their, sorry, their Chicago cheese business. It was a company. It was not a factory at this point in time. This is so all. So he's kicking it off. They're like, yeah, this is all in Chicago. like 1909 to like 1912. Okay. So he ends up like, it's, it's unclear if the business that he was working for, uh, 
collapsed on its own or if he was pushed out by the guys who actually owned it. But he ended up uh, pretty well broke uh, without a job. Keep that cheese. Yeah, he's... But yeah, (laughs) so he ended up stranded in Chicago. No money, really, to speak of, and no real future. So he kind of invented the uh, wholesale product, or, like, basically how we sell food today, because he bought... Some of the last of his meager earnings and uh, bought a carriage and a horse named Patty to pull it and would go down to the water side in Chicago and buy bulk cheese and just take it to the markets and sell it for a markup, which is it didn't say that that's how we got that model, but it seems to be one of the earlier uh, wholesale to resale models going on. And apparently that was successful enough that by 1915, he had enough money to move all four of his brothers down from Canada to open the to open his first cheese factory in somewhere in Illinois, Stockton, Illinois, um, where he then applied for a patent after doing work in there in 1916 was awarded the patents number 1186524. Um, the title of this patent was Process of Sterilizing Cheese and Improving a pro- and an Improved Product by Such Methods. <laughs> the, well, the procedure to this was to convert cheese of the cheddar genus into such conditions that may be kept indefinitely without spoiling under conditions which it would ordinarily cause to spoil and accomplish this result without substantially did, uh, affecting the taste of the cheese or effectively impairing the taste of the cheese. So they're like, damn, you kept it fresh, but that shit still stinks and it still tastes good. This man in <laughs> 1917... Seeing that we are going into World War One, yep. saw the need for portable processed cheese products and started making all of his stuff in 3.5 and 7.75 ounce tins to secure himself a payday from Uncle Sam and uh, pretty much sew himself into the discourse of America of like what is actually food. Wait, so 3.5 by 7? So this is like a no, floppy so disk of cheese? No, so the first one is, it's they're in ounces. This is like a spread oh, can. A this is what you'd get in like a K-ration. So those just happened to be the sizes that they needed that fit in everything. So they were like, sweet, we'll buy them from you. But so he also... Still, it's like cheese in a tin. I guess I was imagining like a slice. But this is like just a ration a, yeah, a of tin. cheese in a tin. Yeah. Okay. And uh, because of that... Thousands and thousands of people tried his cheese, and it became very, very popular. It became one of the most popular cheeses in the world, and is now very well frowned upon by almost everybody in certain circumstances. And this is American cheddar we're talking about, or is this an oh, offshoot of American cheddar? So the cheddar? name of the man who invented this was James L. Kraft. Oh, And shit. this is American <laughs> cheese, which originally... This is where the next part comes in, because there's a schmear campaign on American cheese, and it's only recently been a schmear campaign that is worthy of calling the cheese total shit. Dang, so is it like from a historical context? Like, yo, so, this fool didn't know what he was doing, or no, is it just... So like, originally, because so he wasn't the first person to do this, for one. Some Swiss people did it in 1911, but it's unclear if they knew of each other, so that <laughs> might be its own thing. But so the whole deal with his patents, which it's not said in this patents, but the laws were different back then. And it was assumed that he left this out because of uh, basically proprietary technology. Yeah. But the only trade secrets. Yeah. The only thing that original American cheese had in it that is foreign to the cheese making process was sodium citrate, which... (laughs) Do you know what sodium so, citrate is? What's what? Salt and citrus? Salt and citrus acid. You can actually make <laughs> sodium citrate at your house with bisodium carbate, baking soda, yeah. and citric acid. Okay. You just boil them together into a solution, let that reaction happen, let it settle, and you got that. So that's the only thing. It's used as an emulsifier, which you know how we were talking about stadium cheese the other day? Yeah. This, I'm glad we talked about it because this like <laughs> sent me down this rabbit hole in the first place. Okay. Sodium citrate 
is a perfect emulsifier for multiple kinds of cheese. Emulsifiers like thickens it up. No, emulsifier binds uh, product together. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, if you're doing a salad dressing, emulsifiers are super important because it'll combine right. the oil and the water and make them stick together, and that's how you get everything to be thick. Got so, it. it just ends up being, like, when we use sodium citrate these days, we just get it straight out of oranges because sodium citrate's, like, in the rind. So, yeah. we just process it out of there. So, he probably, like, naturally got it from there? Or was he Well, at that point in time, he almost assuredly had to have been because the process to produce it that it would have been more expensive to ship in a bunch of uh, baking soda and then a bunch of already processed separated citric acid right. than it would be to have an orange orchard next to them. But because of this, it is called processed American cheese. Okay, I, I saw a little bit of this in my research, the processed thing versus so real. The reason why it's called processed American cheese and the only criteria it's required to be called American processed cheese is melting it, putting sodium uh, citrate in it, and then letting it reconstitute. That's all it takes to make processed cheese. So legally, it has ah. to be called processed cheese because it's in there. So then we go to this government cheese we're gonna call it an issue and where i think we started speaking very poorly of processed cheese in this country so government cheese is all processed cheese government cheese is in fact all originally supposed to be Kraft's recipe for that cheese oh is he like trying to shoehorn himself in he's like he got he he was the major provider for cheese for world war one He's he got that he was already sewn into everything uh, directly afterwards. There was like the Depression era thinking yeah. of how everything worked. So during this, all of the farmers were terrified that any shift in the economy, like another war, just simply people betting on futures being inappropriate, uh, yeah. would tank their industry. So the government stepped in, said, hey, we're going to do and we're going to basically cover your costs if you can't sell this for as much as it does to produce. So that's stated so, yeah. a strange precedent for the American government to basically end up purchasing overflow stock or stock that couldn't be sold to make everybody safe. And this is like all of the welfare programs we have in this country are all apparently produced this way. Like none of them were we have hungry people first. They're all we have too much shit first. <laughs> so... Because of government this, cheese. Yeah. So because of this, <laughs> around the 1950s, they had started purchasing, you'd say, preserved milk, so powdered milk, butter, whatever. Yeah. They had decided it was a good idea to keep a stockpile on this. So they regularly kept a stockpile on this. Around the night, I think it was around that time, they started uh, injecting massive amounts of cash into the dairy industry in a very short amount of time to try and lower the costs of it. But because they did that, they encouraged a bunch of people to make a bunch of processed cheese because the government would buy it off of them. So it ends up being like that Fox thing earlier where it's if you yeah. incentivize doing this thing, people will just start doing the thing. Yeah. So it, it so made it so in cheesy. 1980, we had a hot, one million point four dollars in uh, cheese. Just Holy sitting in caves in Kansas City. Oh my God, cheese cave! Well, that's one point four million. Well, and their solution to this <laughs> was: all right, we've got all this grain and everything. We've got the stockpiles on. We can send whatever we can overseas, but sending cheese overseas is still like pound for pound, just not worth it. Yeah. So we're going to do it domestically. And at that point in time, they hadn't stopped buying excess cheese for people. So you had a bunch of farmers kind of just producing shit processed cheese at whatever like their own way of doing it and forcing poor people to eat it which like by forcing i mean it's the only thing they can really eat it was one of the only things on their program that they could eat yeah and uh basically like if you were forced to eat something that was of mild quality your entire childhood you would talk shit about it like quite a bit yeah so because it had to be labeled processed cheese And the other definition that's required to be labeled processed cheese is it has to be less than 50% cheese, which is where you get 
the state of cheese now because it wasn't until like 1990 something that Kraft started screwing with their own cheese recipe and they don't specifically say it but it kind of turns into like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it was originally just oh we put sodium citrate in this and it makes like it does affect the flavor and texture of the cheese quite a bit yeah but into oh well you guys said this stuff was terrible so we're gonna make it terrible anyway so they then just started producing it in the criteria that was cheaper for business which is mostly whey products and all of the other stuff yeah just throwing in like fillers almost just uh but now we're going the other direction which is hilarious because there's this now schmear campaign and most people hate american cheese around the world and all of the people who stood by american cheese are now getting upset because american cheese has stopped taking or stopped putting in all of the unnatural preservatives that it added in from people saying that they were terrible cheese in the first place. <laughs> so like give me the organic shit but make it taste good <laughs> yeah exactly but those two things don't go together because yeah. we train our taste buds insane so is that why the midwest is like cheese central no it's all because the, of craft the midwest so not necessarily because so the midwest is already uh our farming belt yeah. So it already had the cows there. But, you know, like and, Wisconsin. Well, so the reason why. Cheeseheads. Yeah. <laughs> then that all kind of, I'm pretty sure Wisconsin was already making cheese at the American cheese level. Because yeah. people in Wisconsin dislike American cheese quite a bit. Ooh. And they don't consider it real cheese. So Kraft moves out to the Midwest, makes cheese big, and then everyone in Wisconsin is like, Man, you're the fake shit. We got the real cheese. Well, they also don't necessarily care about what they do because they're the real cheese and because they get the same market subsidies as everybody else. (laughs) Like, most of the market subsidies were set up because the Midwest was already... I think it was... The Midwest was 50% of the U.S. population, and then 50% of that population was farmers. So anything that you did that was for the farmers was this giant swath of... Uh, your American supporters. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of agricultural money around back in the day, just sheerly because of how many people had to farm as a living. Yeah, forget about the blood and slavery and all that. Just yeah. It's cheese. It's cheese. Cheese, yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, kind of on that same note, you know, I read a story of a man who kind of in a roundabout way earned his freedom from cheese. It's kind of another, I would say, important part of American history. So macaroni and cheese uh, often gets credited to Thomas Jefferson. Um, A lot of people will credit it to him, but it was actually his slave. Um, So I won't go too deep into the crazy history and his connection but i think it is relevant to know and it's why this guy learned how to cook in the first place and why he made macaroni and cheese so like i said he was one of thomas jefferson's slaves but he was a hemmings so if you've ever heard of sally hemmings that is she's a a bit of a controversial figure in history because we don't know exactly what happened but sally hemmings was basically a slave that Thomas Jefferson inherited from his first wife's dad when he died. So that guy, the guy he inherited the slave from, was actually, you know, hooking up with, uh, I think he had kids with her, uh, with this lady, Betty Hemmings. So Sally Hemmings was her daughter. She was born into slavery. Uh, And then Thomas Jefferson inherited Sally Hemmings when Thomas Jefferson's wife's father died and gave him all the slaves wow this is uh just super fun to see how this chain of terrible terrible shit happens yeah so sally hemmings um has a brother right james hemmings uh so sally hemmings you know uh thomas jefferson's first wife i believe she died Uh, maybe something else just happened Uh, But her name was Martha. Martha's out of the picture. Thomas Jefferson starts hooking up with Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings has a brother, James Hemings. Uh, That's the guy that invented macaroni and cheese. 
So, <laughs> it, I'm trying to explain all the relationships in the easiest way possible. Basically, um, Martha had kids with Thomas Jefferson, right? But because um, Martha Jefferson's father, the slave owner, had been with this woman and had children, Betty Hemings, and had children, those people were essentially half-sisters to Thomas Jefferson's wife, right? So then Thomas Jefferson and Martha have kids, and they're like, all right, we're going to go to Paris. We're going to bring the kids. Who's going to watch the kids? Let's bring a slave. Oh, and it might as well be like their half uncle and aunt. We should just bring Sally and James along. This would make a very, very different Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) So Thomas Jefferson. Okay, I should back up a little bit, right? This is early American history. We're talking, uh, where is this? 1784. So 1784, we're still, you know, early American history. Thomas Jefferson gets named as, like, minister to France or something. It's basically an ambassador, right? And they're working out these details of, like, what is the relationship going to be between American co- uh, America and European countries, whatever. So his job is to talk to all these people in Paris. He goes over there. And like I said, he's like, we're going to bring the kids. We're going to bring the slaves. It's going to be a great time. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have such a blast being made fun of by the French. Yeah. And so Thomas Jefferson actually really admired French culture. And French culture at the time was, you know, kind of the like high status type of thing. The hua hua hui hui. Exactly. Um, So, right. He has this idea. He's going to bring a slave over there. And he's like. Ooh, another great idea. I'm going to teach this guy how to cook because I love French food and I can't get it in America. I don't know how to cook. So I'll train him while I'm over there. I'll just take him back and we can eat this delicious French food all the time. So, yeah, he gets over there. Um, James Hemings is like 19 at the time. It's very young to be that worldly, even if you're in a terrible situation. (laughs) Yeah, and it was something that I, I tried to understand, right? It's like... He's a black dude. He, they do say, like, the Hemings family, they were kind of lighter skinned. Um, so they wouldn't be, like, dark black. But I think people would notice them, you know, of, of having, like, black origins. Um, they definitely would. But so it's like, yeah, this, like, 1700s in France, and you're obviously someone's slave. Like, that wasn't a secret that he was a slave. But they were also like, yeah, but you're cool. And over there like slavery still existed um but like i said they went there in 1784 so by 1789 france had actually abolished slavery um thomas jefferson obviously knows this and he was a little bit worried about what was going to happen yeah that his dude would just stay be like (laughs) hey thanks for hooking me up with the work skills staying getting a job exactly um And I guess later in history, it was discovered that uh, Sally and James had discussed it and had considered just staying in France and being free. Um, Because that was kind of the deal, too. If they stayed in France, you know, they'd be free. There's no more slavery in France. But if they went back to America, it's like this dude still owns them. So they basically decided because all the family was back there, like that was just kind of the life that they knew and they were used to. And by the way... They were house slaves, right? So they're not really like whipped. I'm, maybe they were occasionally. No, they probably were, but they got to. But they were treated a lot speaking, nicer. They were in a better position than everybody working the fields, right? Like James Hemings in particular, they like make note of how he's like always dressed in nice stuff. So it's like they were given nice clothes. They were, they basically were like, it's a decent enough life, uh, and our family's all there, so let's just go back. And, and by the way, James, um, he was paid throughout most of his life. So, yeah, but an allowance is only a, like that's oh, what yeah, I was thinking. I'm like, not saying it's like good; it's well, still yeah. bullshit. That was like, like the other episode where I'm like, if I ended up being content to live in my box and you didn't let me leave my box, I'm still being kept against my will. I just don't actively use it. Exactly. Um, but I bring up the pay because when he was in France. 
he was getting paid there as well. Um, he used that to actually learn French, which, you know, may have had to do with that discussion as well. Like, should we stay here? Like, that may have been how he comprehended that in the first place. That, like, oh, everyone's getting freed here. Like, slavery is about to not exist. So, anyways, he... Oh, so he just thought the writing was on the wall. So, maybe if I go home, I'll live long enough to see the end of us ending slavery? I think so. But I'm saying even the fact that he could understand that slavery was ending in France was probably mostly just because he spoke French. Oh, Because he he saved his money and bought tutoring lessons to learn French. I would assume that if he was being taught French cuisine, that there was somebody yelling at him in French. (laughs) Yeah, probably that. So anyways, a little bit of history basically to tell you, you know, this guy comes back to America, starts making these French dishes, and everybody loves it. Right, Thomas Jefferson, he has this place, it's called Monticello in Virginia. It's like just like a mansion of the time, a whole estate. And he's always serving up these dishes, not giving James credit. I mean, they probably know it's like cooks and stuff, but he's kind of just presenting it and like, oh, here's this recipe that I have. One of them was a pie called macaroni. Um, the recipe, and you can find the recipe, it was just three ingredients. It was macaroni, cheese, and butter. You just layer it and you bake it. The end product, it it kind of is a little bit like modern day macaroni and cheese, but it's more like a pie that has, not like a crust, but like a hard edge to it. Yeah, that's how you serve, like if you're getting macaroni and cheese, you get like the square brick. And it's like, they make like a bake, so it's more on the angle of a baked ziti, and they pre-bake it and cut squares out for you, which I think is what it ended up being. Yep. Yeah, and so, I mean, even his dish that he made was kind of a play off of what they called just pasta and cheese. Uh, So, I mean, he's not like the true, true originator, but kind of macaroni and cheese in its modern form. It's like, this is the closest. The American bastardized pasta that I'm sure annoys the crap out of a lot of people from Europe. Yeah. So, So he started to, right, he had just been through this whole thing in France, watched them abolish slavery, came back, was like kind of absolutely enslaved but like maybe borderline enslaved like he was getting paid he was treated a little bit nicer um so he just talks to thomas jefferson and and he's like hey man uh i want to be free like let me go that's (laughs) ballsy yeah and jefferson was like you know what yeah i think you deserve it like you've you've done a lot of good stuff for me but that macaroni and cheese is so damn good i can't let you go like if you teach someone else how to cook like you cook, then I'll let you go. That is some of the most petty shit <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. Like, yeah, totally, you can be a completely normal, autonomous human being. But first, you have to teach another person that is in, hopefully, the same decent conditions. Man, that'd suck if they made him go outside and choose who he's going to fucking teach. <laughs> well... I mean, the guy that he essentially chose, and I don't know how that went down, if they were like, yeah, pick a guy, was his brother. And his brother ended up working there, I think, for the rest of his life, at at least for a very long time after that. A couple last facts about James Hemings. Uh, He was an alcoholic and likely bisexual. Oh, (laughs) cool, man. (laughs) Um, When they... All came back to America. Thomas Jefferson, I believe this was after his presidency, but maybe it was during. He actually offered him a job at the White House. Uh, At the time, James Hemings was in Baltimore. So Thomas Jefferson sent him this message. Uh, James writes back and he's like, hey, man, I I got a job. I I don't know if I can leave this. (laughs) And so Thomas Jefferson writes him again and is like, yeah, dude, I'm pretty sure it's all good. Like, this is the White House. This is official stuff. Why don't you come out here? And so then <laughs> Thomas Jefferson gets another response. It's not even from James Hemings. It's like from some other guy that's writing for James. And he's like, hey, yeah, sure. About that job. Like, what exactly do I have to do and how much does it pay? And then from there, Thomas Jefferson just kind of ghosted him. I think he was like, yeah, we'll just leave that. I don't think this guy wants to come out here. (laughs) 
I kind of thought too, maybe it's like James is getting a little tired of uh, old TJ's bullshit. Yeah, you I'm know? glad He's you like... finally called him TJ after <laughs> fighting calling TJ TJ this whole time. <laughs> He's like, come on, man. I spent years with you in Paris. You, I was enslaved my whole childhood and shit. Like, I don't want to hang out with you. Right, dude, Paris had to have been nuts if he was like, so if he learned French while he was in Paris... And he was possibly a bisexual. Like, I know homosexuality was not totally kosher over there. But in France, they had, like, a lot more leeway for the... Yeah, I would think like, they'd be kind of cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, he was just walking around, learning how to cook good food, finding out that, like, slavery isn't even, like, a total worldwide thing, which I'm sure he was told, like, growing up. Oh, like, you yeah. have to... I mean, being born into yeah, slavery... Uh, and then, like, he speaks more French than the guy who owns him, I'm assuming, because he has to fucking use it. Yep. So just hanging out in France had to be, like, either the best or the worst situation for him, because he's just, like, seeing how good stuff can be. And, like, objectively, things were still terrible back then. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like, I certainly would not be like, oh, yeah, that time you forced me to go to France and teased me with how the world could be. I'm sure to come back <laughs> yeah. and work for you. Yeah, let me just come right back to your estate and fucking slave over some mac and cheese. So, yeah, that is that is the story of James Hemmings. Um, and a couple last interesting facts. I feel like this guy really shaped modern american food because he also didn't invent but kind of made the american modern version of both french fries and ice cream it would make sense that he did that because i don't this, yeah. like most of the way our food is these days is based on marketing and some of the earliest marketing was uh see this strong proud leader eat this thing or drink this thing or use this product so i can see how like the way we bastardized French cooking would have totally come from us. Like, yeah, we taught this guy French cooking, and then I commented on his cooking until he changed it the way I like, and then all of the Americans saw me eating it, and now that's how we make food. I do have some minor notes on cheese, because do you remember when we were talking about how I was like, it's pretty well impossible to get stadium cheese in a restaurant? Yeah. Yeah, so that sodium citrate, which you can order relatively cheaply it's in liquid form usually it's a powder oh, that's so right. it's a dry um, storage uh it's uh water soluble yeah so you just throw it, it in your you just, so it's between 0.5 percent and seven percent of your total weight in cheese and any cheese you throw in there it will basically turn into a perfectly melty cheese after it's reincorporated so if you're in a restaurant and somebody has been yelling at you for years that you have to make a roux to make cheese sauce, they are full of shit, and you <laughs> should just go buy yourself some sodium citrate and make yourself some nice melty cheese. Yeah, what a what a high-class French attitude. We don't need no roux. Or what's it called? So you got it right. It's roux. <laughs> okay. Butter. Back it up a little bit. I just searched lyrics.com for all songs that contain cheese, right? And there's like 27,000 songs. If you search for cheese in the title of a song, there's very few. And like this Modest Mouse song pops up all the time if you look for that. Um, I brought this up just because like, I thought that there would be more songs i guess just straight up dedicated to cheese but it's like cheese is more of like just this kind of magical thing that you can throw in there it can mean so many different things it is very versatile and then when they use it literally it's usually negative right because it's almost always about government cheese yeah so modest mouse are like I feel like they're one of the only bands who has directly addressed cheese <laughs> and directly address the mouse's relationship with cheese. And it's also interesting, I think, if you just read this line once, you're like, oh, yeah, mice eat cheese. Totally. We all know that. But it's like, do mice really eat cheese? 
I know to some degree they do because I used to have to use mouse traps when I was a kid, and I can't see any reason why they would step on that thing. So, yes, mice do eat cheese, but there's strong evidence that they do not like it at all. The things that mice like are sugar, fat, and uh, fruits, basically. By the way, that's uh, humans, too. That, well, that's yeah. what we eat, the same thing. <laughs> but they naturally would not go for, like, proteins, which, you know, cheese is high in protein. Um, I was actually thinking about this right before this transition, how uh, lions are possibly, like, the only things that naturally would get cheese. Because if it's made from renin and a small animal was drinking from its mother, it might, after it dies, produce cheese. Right. And then they'd eat that. Yeah, I mean, there's pretty strong evidence that mice actually don't enjoy cheese. So it made me think about this line again. Mice eat cheese, and for the most part, they do as they please. I feel like this line is actually about, like, yeah, they'll they'll eat some cheese, but, you know, usually they're just doing their own thing. I always <laughs> thought that this song was about parenting. <laughs> I mean, it probably is. It's probably yeah. just a metaphor. <laughs> it's just not straight literal cheese. But I think this is, like, kind of, like, Modest Mouse tries to be deep with a lot of stuff, and I think they succeed at it. I think that's the it. only thing they do. Yeah. I, superficial uh, Modest Mouse lyrics kind of seem silly, because then you have to believe in, like, ghost dogs. <laughs> right right yeah <laughs> a wild pack of family dogs but i i just found this line really interesting because it's like okay i know this band and what they kind of do lyrically and i think they are like you said making a metaphor to perhaps childhood parenting but the it's cops, like maybe yeah but it's like maybe you're unintentionally kind of deep here by saying mice eat cheese and for the most part they do as they please because <laughs> it's like they don't yeah, really they, want that they had shit. to eat the cheese <laughs> So they could hang out the rest of the time, which does somewhat make sense if you're living in a house and the only thing that you easily have access to is the cheese. It's not worth leaving the house just because your only food is cheese. So another great point. Where did this mice eating cheese thing come from? Kind of was because of food storage, right? It's like back in the uh, earlier days. I don't even know what I'm saying. Earlier days, but um, basic like beginning food storage. It was like, all right, we keep the meat's up high you know we hang the meats up high so animals and things don't get to it all of our grains and anything else we have we we're gonna store in glass jars but cheese being relatively new at the time and just kind of the like funky nature of cheese they're like just put it on the shelf yeah <laughs> i mean so that was easy for the mice to get to. They couldn't get to the meat. Jesus, right uh, here. <laughs> so the reason why mice have a rap for stealing our cheese is because it was the only thing they could steal. Yeah, it basically was just there and easy for them. Some other weird cheese legends, sayings, I don't even know. This is why cheese is so weird to me. It's like kind of drug territory where it's just like, what the fuck is cheese? Um, have you ever heard the moon is made of cheese? Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, quite regularly. Yeah. Um, there's a song about that, too. Well, okay. So, in 1546, John Haywood, uh, he wrote a book of Proverbs, and he claimed, the moon is made of green cheese. And in this context, green just means, like, soft, freshly formed cheese. Oh, which had kind I gotcha. of the same color that the moon had. So he's like, yes, the moon is made of green cheese. <laughs> yeah, for a second, I thought this was going to be like the Iliad, where they just described the sky as purple. <laughs> so this dude, he was a musician and a composer. So maybe even this moon made of green cheese, maybe it was a song, but none of his works survived. Like it was documented that he was a musician and composer, but really just his lyrical stuff lived on. None of his, okay. like, his musical notation gotcha. lived on. So, yeah, he had the paper problem. Yeah. But this dude, I mean, so, you know, he made this little saying that lasted forever. And it's like, you'd think, oh, like, that's that's notable. You know, you made your way into history. But this book of Proverbs that this was in was almost like every saying you've ever heard. Like, this dude made it up. Like, he came up with haste makes waste, out of sight, out of mind, <laughs> all's well that ends well. Like, all those kind of, like, 
this, idioms that you've heard is like this dude came up with them and he also came up with the moon is made of cheese <laughs> this goes so much into my uh common sense thing where like people keep saying there's shortage of common sense but they don't like to share their knowledge about things so it's impossible to get rid of it these were the first times that those proverbs were ever said and no one has ever said anything against them since (laughs) so we just have them forever yeah and you can actually find this book for free online Um, i want to pay for it man capitalism (laughs) and i tried to read through it and just like what else is in here what other gems and it's like it's an interesting book like there was like 25 introductions or something which i don't get why that was necessary well so was the first introduction the real introduction and the rest of them were actually proverbs on introductions (laughs) could have been so yeah i mean that's john haywood interesting guy but the moon is made of cheese thing lives on to this day um nasa actually made a joke about it recently I think I didn't write the date. I think it was like in the aughts, like maybe 2005 or something. Was it a Famunda joke? No, they posted a photo. So this is probably actually post 2005. They posted a photo on social media. And in one of the craters of the moon, they put uh, like a tag that you'd see on cheese with an expiration date. Oh, man, that's got (laughs) to somebody has that as proof that we did not go to the moon because there's a barcode (laughs) on the moon. So it's very obviously purchased from somebody that's going to backfire. Yeah, it probably will. Another modern take on it uh, is the musician, that one guy. Uh, He's got a song called The Moon is Disgusting. Let me read you some of the lyrics. The moon is disgusting. It's made of cheese. A wet cheese left out in the cold. The moon is disgusting. Or so I am told. told. (laughs) Yeah. Shout out that one guy. That numeral one guy. So, uh, yeah, other pop culture references. Benny and June. Are you familiar with the grilled cheese scene? No. Benny and June is one of those things that I've heard, but have had absolutely no... uh, uh, introduction to like it's something like i've heard my parents say betty and june and it was probably when i was like 10 and i have never looked at it i think it came out in the early 90s uh it was one of leonardo dicaprio's first movies that would have been during the era in which i thought that attractive men were bad actors because girls like them So, yeah, Leo's in it. A young Leo. He uh, makes a grilled cheese with an iron. A grilled cheese. with Is that where that came from? Because that's like a classic. I'm not allowed to have an oven in my room or a stove in my room. Use the iron to make a grilled cheese thing. Because I've done that. Yeah. I'm like, not sure. A lot, kind of. I've ruined two hotel irons. Yeah. So, anyways, he makes grilled cheese with an iron. Um, and they have a big debate. What is the setting? use what do you think what setting would you use if you on an iron that very much so (laughs) depends on what the temperature range of the iron was but i would say eight if it's on a one to ten setting okay yeah i mean that also depends on like what temperatures the cheese is fresh out of the fridge because i don't know if you do this but when i make it compared to a fabric though but they're not say you <laughs> so i know how you cook a fabric that's you just stick it on 10 and put it on there but if you're trying to make a good grilled cheese there are so many variables that go into it like when i make grilled cheese i make sure that both my bread and my cheese are at room temperature so that everything melts while it's being toasted versus if i'm making like 200 grilled cheese i will toast just the bread and damned the cheese on how melty it is and i'll finish the cheese in the oven well what i'm trying to get at here is um they have a debate about it right and june is telling this other character because benny made the grilled cheese she's like man i told him he should have used wool like wool is the perfect setting and they get into a little debate and she's like silk would have been too soggy cotton would have burned it and so the guy's like, well, what did what did he use? And he's like, rayon. 
I mean, Benny uses rayon to make grilled cheese, but... I've never had an iron that had settings that weren't numbers. Really? Yeah. I have. I have never... But I, it is more common, definitely, to see numbers. That's, that just blew my mind. And I would assume <laughs> that rayon is wrong, because doesn't rayon have a low melting point? It's yeah, but, plastic. But I would think you would kind of want that, because it's directly contacting the bread. I will quote many <laughs> people who have told me how to cook for a living. Hot pans god damn it i want hot pans because when you cheese though when you throw because you're not the thing that you are doing is you are making a crispy surface right. using the transfer of energy and that transfer of energy is being done by oil which is from the butter so if you have it you can go slow and low and still get it it's not going to make the nice like it's technically a sear but it's not going to break off easy. so if you do it low you have to keep it on and you can't like move it or anything until that sear is set up. And that's how you end up with like when you see the thing is stuck to the pan. That's because they didn't have a hot enough pan when they put it in there. So you want it to like so sear it on there. I would use say cotton. I would either that or isn't wool higher. I would I say that they were probably higher. right with wool because you want it to be smoking hot when you put it on there. That's why the temperature of the cheese comes into it. Because if you have cold cheese and you do that, you'll end up with a toasty outside and just the edges of the cheese melted. Versus if everything's at room temperature and you did it at, say, I'm going to say is silk in between rayon and wool? I would guess. Yeah, if you did it at, like, silk, you would probably get nice, even melty, and it wouldn't take, like, an hour. Because it does take a while to do it. And I've always just cranked it on all the way anytime I've done it. Because yeah. for a small amount of time, I did sell grilled cheese sandwiches at a resort in the middle of nowhere to the employees. We should start a Patreon where we just test this all out. So it would be like, confirmed, wool is the setting for iron grilled cheese. We have to find an iron with a wool setting. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know Monty Python? Uh, yes, I know Monty Python. <laughs> you know the main guy? Do you know his name? No. It's John Cleese. C L. E-E-S-E. But his name was actually originally John Cheese. And he changed it as his stage name so that no one would call him Johnny Cheese? <laughs> so, actually, his dad changed it. And he changed it when he enlisted in World War One because he, he just thought people would make fun of him. I would also have so changed he's like, it. Yeah, fuck it, it's Cleese now. <laughs> it's like they added a last... Uh, an S to our last name for the legitimate reason of it's too hard to find my family's last name when we immigrated because yeah, there was just there was a lot my, of winter yeah so we added an s but i was always told as a kid that we added the s because there was a serial killer in our family and then i well then i turned like 14 and realized that that story is told to a lot of people who have simple changes like people who have <laughs> yeah. smith to smiths like i had just too many friends who were also like yeah there was a serial killer in our family back in the day so they changed a name and i'm like nah this the male thing's probably it like, it just added an S because there was too many of you guys close to each other. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're wrapping it up here, but I want I do want to leave the pod with uh, the future of cheese and some high-tech cheese studies. Does this involve a 3D printer? No. Well, maybe, but not that I know of. Um, there was a study. Didn't write down the year. I, I, it was recent, at least in the 2000s. It was called Cheese in Surround Sound. And what they did was they took different, uh, well, the same cheese cultures, put them in different containers and settings, and exposed those individual cheeses to different types of music to see if it would change the flavor of the cheese. This is going to end with fucking Grateful Dead and string cheese people, (laughs) isn't it? Surprisingly, no. Uh, I'm very surprised they didn't do like string cheese incident or some of that. It was actually difficult for me to find information on the history of American cheese because of string cheese incident. (laughs) That's great. So what they did was uh, for six months, 24 hour exposure to whichever music that they picked. They did have a control cheese, which was sitting in silence. Uh, And then after six months, they ate all the cheeses, and saw which one was the best. So they had five genres of music. I did find the actual study, but it was kind of hard to see like how they changed it, right? Because they were like, oh, one of these cheeses was listening to A Tribe Called Quest the whole time. 
but that was also like the hip hop cheese. So I don't know if it solely listened to a Trap Gold Quest or if, oh, it, or if it they just that yeah. was the only band that they cited <laughs> out of many. Yeah. But that one, the Trap Called Quest cheese, was the tastiest cheese at the end of the six months. I can imagine. Yeah. That's, you're getting a nice rhythm. It's like, for the most part, I would hope it was just Trap Called Quest, because they're very upbeat. Yeah. There's very little uh, anger thrown into the cheese in that situation. Like, do they have an Immortal Technique cheese? I mean, I, I would think that would be the hip-hop cheese, and I'm guessing no. But maybe they did. Um, the ones that they listed were... Techno, rock, classical, and hip-hop, which is only four, so I don't know why they didn't just list all five, but whatever. Um, but yeah, the one exposed to the hip-hop displayed a discernibly stronger smell and stronger, fruitier taste than the other test samples. So that is cheese. Thank you. Um, have you ever seen the Queen's Wheat? 